This week's press gallery is brought to you by Odyssey Golf. And I got to say, guys, this is a stroke of genius. The new stroke lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved weight towards the head and the grip. You will feel a difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new stroke lad from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Available in stores. Learn more about it at odysseygolf.ca. Another quick reminder to subscribe to the Press Gallery wherever you happen to podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. It does help. And, of course, spread the word to all of your nerdy friends who enjoy hearing about politics. Any questions, comments, or concerns, give me a shout. egraney at postmedia.com is my email, or I'm very easy to find hanging out on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, August 23rd, 2019, and this is the, forgive me for I'm about to sing, ABC's As Easy As Reappointing. <laughs> well done. Edition. <laughs> so chirpy this morning. I know. Around the table with me today, my legislature colleague, Claire Clancy. How are you, mate? I'm great. I went to Fringe last night. So oh, yeah. It was so fun. What what show did you see? I went to see The Flying Detective. It was enjoyable. Excellent. And Keith Geron, politics columnist. How are you, mate? I'm good. I did not go to Fringe. I went to a movie last night. Oh, really? What did yeah, you see? Yeah, we saw Good Boys. Oh, yeah. I've heard yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, it's a little raunchy. Uh, 12-year-olds doing raunchy things is kind of strange, but uh, <laughs> funny. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> they don't know they're doing raunchy things. That's kind of the joke. So, oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I didn't do any of that last night. Just Skyped with my brother who got hit by a car. Oh, no. On his bicycle. I know. Poor guy. Mm. Whole bunch, lost a, a lot of skin. But he's mm. fine. He's fine, everybody. It's fine. He's Australian. He's tough. He's exactly. used to it. And yeah. then his poor dog had to get a, a knee reconstruction as well on the same day. Oh, my Lord. Wow. Yeah, that's a bad day. It was a dramatic day. In the Australian version of my household. So we have a lot to talk about today, um, which is funny because this is what was breaking yes, last week, rather, as we recorded uh, the podcast, which you didn't obviously get round to as most of the press releases came out after we'd wrapped recording. But we're going to be talking about the huge bunch of board appointments, uh, agency boards and commissions. That's the ABC's reference there. Uh, so there are a whole bunch done last week, like so many. Uh, we've got a couple of developments on the education file, including the government ripping up an MOU, that's a Memorandum of Understanding, with the ATA, the Alberta Teachers Association, because why does education have so many of those Acronyms? Why? I don't know. I hate acronyms. But <laughs> There's also it's not a comment on my feelings about anything. <laughs> it's just acronyms. Oh, they're annoying. Um, and uh, small development on the curriculum front as well. And we will lastly be talking about potential changes on the cannabis property tax file. Is that a file? Wasn't before, is now. Hooray. Uh, <laughs> let's jump straight on into it. Let's start off with, as I said, the news that happened on Friday last week in which the government sent out press release after press release. I think it was nine press releases Just in Just a massive an info dump of yeah. these new names that we really yeah. hadn't seen before. So. so basically the government has gone ahead and uh, a whole bunch of things happen here. So at 19 of Alberta's agency boards and commissions, so that's, uh, for example, the Alberta Health Services, 
um, board, a whole bunch of post-secondary boards like the University of Alberta, University of Calgary, um, all the way through to some kind of justice board uh, that kind of sets some kind of rules or, yeah, really good at this, Emma, and also Workers' Compensation Board as well. So there were 61 new appointments um, that were signed into being on Thursday afternoon in Calgary at Cabinet. So then the government announced them all in a giant information dump on Friday morning. It was like our, our phones just kept dinging, like, ding! oh, they've got another one. Ding! They've got another one. <laughs> this has got to be the end. Ding! Are you kidding me? <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, quite the dramatic turn of events last Friday. Uh, Keith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they all I was, I was uh I was off that day. Um so kind of had to catch up on it and there was a lot of reading to do. Um so these are some names that obviously we'll have to get to know uh in, in the future. Uh you know that new head of the workers compensation board, new board chairs for universities and 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 board members and so on. Uh so I mean there is a pattern obviously to these appointments. These are a lot of these people are connected with the UCP or conservative circles who have been donors to the conservative party at some point Mm -hmm. or another. Now, is this surprising? No. Uh, This is something that governments often do. Uh, The NDP appointed a lot of their people or a lot of people closer to NDP worldviews uh, when they were in government. The difference I think here and, you know, Dwayne Bratt, who is quoted in our story, Professor Dwayne Bratt, said the surprising thing is just the speed with which they're doing it right yeah. now. The NDP and previous governments often let the current board members, the the the, uh, the current positions kind of finish their term mm-hmm. before they brought in their own people. Uh, that The UCP is not doing that here. They have dismissed those people before their term was up and brought in uh, more conservative folks. I think that is a little bit of a concern. Uh, We'll wait and see how much more of this goes on. The big question that often comes up when these appointments are made is, is this a reward for somebody donating to the party or for being loyal to the party in the past? Or is this a government saying, you know what, we need people with who kind of share our viewpoints to be in influential positions? And I, I have to think it's a bit of both here. The danger is that you stack these boards and agencies and commissions with people with only one viewpoint. And there is a diversity problem uh, where you do not have alternative views. We have seen this in the past. I think the journal actually did a huge investigation about a decade ago looking at the PC governments and all of their appointments to boards, agencies, Mm -hmm. commissions. They went through 100 of them and found disproportionately high numbers of people with conservative credentials. Half uh, of them were either like insider, party insiders or card-carrying members. That's right. Um, of, of the Progressive Conservative Party. Yeah. So, Shout out to Jason Markazoff and Darcy Henton for that investigation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Our, our former colleagues who are, who are doing well. So it, it, is a, it is a concern if we continue to go down that road. Hopefully the UCP has learned something from that. But at this point... Uh, I remain a little skeptical. And for people that haven't kind of gone through the list extensively as we have. Clancy um, honestly spent hours just, just Googling people, Googling people to people figure out diving. who they were. Um, we should just point out maybe a couple of examples that we're kind of talking about. So yeah. one prominent one is Len Rhodes, who's going to be leading the AGLC. Um, you know, he was... That's Alberta Gaming Liquor and Cannabis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn, I used an acronym. Look that at was you. a mistake on my part. <laughs> um, and, uh, but he's 
kind of most well known, obviously, as being head of uh, the former head of the Edmonton Eskimos. Um, but he was also the handpicked UCP candidate for Edmonton Meadows um, that then failed to get his seat. Um, he was handpicked by Jason Kenney mm-hmm. and then and then lost in the election. Um, and so it was interesting to see his name pop up. Um, and then another person kind of that was interesting was Andy Crooks, who's been appointed to um, the municipal government board. He's uh, kind of had longtime ties to the conservatives and um, used to be chairman of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and was a member of the Alberta Conservative Consolidation Committee in 2017, uh, which was kind of a committee related to unifying the two conservative parties. And that was with now Health Minister Tyler Shandro as well on yeah. that committee. Yeah. Is he the guy that signed that letter, that firewall yes, he letter? he signed the firewall letter as well. See, that's before my time. What was the firewall letter? Kate? Firewall letter, and this goes back a ways, but this these were some uh, prominent Albertans, uh, conservative Albertans, who felt that uh, Alberta's relationship with Ottawa was unhealthy. Oh, and wow. They suggested, so different to today. Yeah. And so they suggested <laughs> to the Klein government at the time that Alberta should set up certain firewalls uh, that would kind of isolate Alberta as much as possible from Ottawa's influence. And so that included things like setting up um, a provincial police force so it didn't have to rely on the RCMP and uh, I believe setting up its own pension plan. And, yeah. And, 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 Stephen and, uh, Harper signed that, didn't he? Stephen Harper was one of the signatories to that as well. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Also on that list, uh, James Rajat, uh, mm-hmm. interestingly, a former yep. MP, uh, I think fairly popular MP in Edmonton. Uh, he is uh, joining the University of Alberta Board of Governors as well. So uh, there are some prominent conservatives here who have uh, have some new appointments. And I think it's worth noting as well that on Friday, what we spent a lot of time doing was not just going through who are these new appointees, but the big question is who are they also replacing? Mm -hmm. They're replacing prominent Albertans as well who um, are having their contracts often cut short before time is up. And so that was kind of what we spent a lot of time doing as well was trying to look on these websites. And that was a frustrating part of Friday Mm -hmm. was to not be getting direct answers immediately from government saying, well, who are these people replacing and how... um, um, long was was were their contracts supposed to be going on for? Yeah, we emailed a number of press secretaries saying, okay, particularly in post secondary, because let's not forget that was like, oh, that was a ton of post secondary ones. They were like, I don't remember how many post secondary. Yeah, that was a huge, a huge file, and that was a huge chunk of this entire thing. And I said, look, how many of the people being replaced are having their their term cut short, and you know how many are just timed out? And she said, it's public record, go find it basically Google it yourself. And I'm like, come on, man. Like the problem with that is that because they made these changes, all the websites have been scrubbed. So the problem is some of them aren't like cached in um, Wayback Machine. Not all of them are. And like it was just It was unnecessarily difficult. It was unnecessarily lack of transparency from government. They could have just, they went and did it. They stood by it. Fair enough. This is what governments do. It's unusual for them to do it all in one giant flood, but it is what governments do. To have a list that says, okay, here's who they're replacing, here's, you know, who who had their terms cut short. I mean, why you would not want to present that to the public, I don't know. Um, I was lucky enough to have a chat with the former, now former head of the Workers' Compensation Board, Grace Thorenston. She makes no apologies. She is a card-carrying member of the NDP, has been for quite some time. She told me she's dialed back her kind of public campaigning for the NDP once she became part of the WCB, but, you know, she certainly has made no secret of the fact. And she was actually at first appointed to the board under Alison Redford's government. So it's not as though, you know, the PC's always only appointed 
you know, conservative-leaning people. She certainly was not, is not to this very day. And Keith, further to your point about this worry that then people might get the the idea that you have to be a conservative supporter in order to serve on any board. That's what she's most worried about, particularly the WCB, which has had its issues. Mm-hmm. Let's not shy away from that. So they cut the board from 10 down to 7. And uh, yeah, there's some worries there about, well, what do you do with the stability now? WCB has gone through some giant changes under the NDP. And Grace told me that she thinks things are actually starting to look okay. They're slowly making their way to be less shit than they were. That's a paraphrase, not what she said, but basically (laughs) I think is fair. But now they're kind of maybe going to be disrupted again, which is a worry for the organization itself. So, Yeah, I mean, that is the concern. And, and anytime you have a change, there is a disruption. I know uh, covering health for six years, uh, <laughs> there was a constant revolving door, uh, at least prior to the NDP showing up, uh, that has that did cont- uh, cause chaos for o- over the long term. So all you can do here is hope that uh, the, the actual administration, not the board, but the administration of the D- WCB uh, stays intact and, and has some stability and carries through, and that the new board chair, uh, and I forgot her name. Um, Interference. There you go. So good, good memory. So you just have to hope that she's qualified and can, yeah. can, can, uh, can take the, 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 the progress that's been made and build on it. Yeah. And I mean, Thorne said, look, she'll, she'll do a great job. Nothing against Erna at all. She's a really qualified um, person with a ton of credentials here. And, you know, I don't, I wish her well, and I think she'll do an awesome job, but that's not really the point, I guess, no. <laughs> was, was her point to me. Yeah. And Keith, you you referenced the 2007 investigation by Jason Markazoff and Darcy Henton for the Edmonton Journal, and it was really actually uh, interesting to read that. They made the point that a lot of people made on Friday, which was these aren't necessarily like high-paying positions where you get, you know, $200,000 a year to turn up to a meeting three times, you know, but it's you do get money for meetings sometimes like 500 bucks or something like that um but then it's it, it's kind of like that position of power and that ability to put that on your resume for example and be tapped for other high power positions that might be paying you know a lot of money so it's more about the the kind of power dynamic as opposed to the cash that each person is getting. And we we did have a look back through these people and compared them with 2019-2018 donor lists. Of the 61 appointees, 11 of them were UCP donors in 2018 or 19 or both. Let's move over to developments on the education file. It is a shame that education reporter Janet French is on vacation. I would have... Shout out to Janet. Yep, I would have pulled her in here. She took, actually, she took a day out of her vacation, to, God bless her, to come in and cover all the education changes yesterday. Yeah, there was a lot going on. <laughs> I love you, Janet. Um, so we have another panel. Hey! <laughs> I think last week's podcast title was panels 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 and and we missed a and we missed one yeah i've included this one in there now but. there's a new one there's two more actually announced this week what is it with panels in the ucp anyway so latest announcement yesterday was a curriculum panel um so basically they're gonna go and have a look at the freaking curriculum i swear to god <laughs> this <laughs> curriculum um so maybe like a bit of background is that the NDP Good wanted, idea. the NDP um, instituted this curriculum review. Uh, there was a six-year deadline to do this. It's supposed to um, look at courses from K to 12 um, and um, update the curriculum, which hadn't been updated in decades, uh, from my understanding. Um, yep, well before the internet. Right. And it caused, a, the curriculum review itself has been 
a massive source of controversy between the two parties. Uh, during the election campaign period, um, it was something that the UCP campaigned on. They said they would pause the review that was started by the NDP. Um, it, it initially sounded like they would completely cancel it, and then later that language kind of softened to say pause. Um, and now this is where we're at, is that um, Education Minister Adriana Lagrange has said we're you know, creating a panel to, to look at it. So I feel like that's maybe a very, very brief summary of what has been going on with the curriculum review. Um, Janet's story yesterday is a lot more comprehensive, um, but I think kind of what I took from her story, uh, which I thought was interesting, was maybe who's on the panel, um, and in particular the fact that there are no current teachers mm-hmm. uh, sitting on it, which is interesting. Yeah, it wasn't exactly a good week for teachers when it comes to the curriculum review, because yeah, you'll also remember another story is that... Oh, yeah, that story we broke on the weekend. The, we broke on the weekend, right? So the, the Mr. Adriana Lagrange uh, took a, an agreement, a memorandum of understanding that was signed in 2016 that made teachers and the government kind of equal partners in developing... Co-leaders. Co-leaders in mm-hmm. developing the curriculum. Uh, that agreement has now been ripped up. Teachers are not, I guess, co-leaders anymore. They are, according to the minister, still very important partners <laughs> in developing this curriculum. For God's sake, don't put them on that panel. <laughs> right. But they are not part of this panel, current teachers anyway, uh, and they are no longer co-leaders. So yeah, if I was the ATA, I would be uh, I'd be a little miffed at, at the both announcements that happened this week. But the the idea, I guess, here from the government is that they want to have um, greater variety of perspectives. Exactly who that is, we're not entirely sure, but they want to bring in more voices on this curriculum. And I guess we'll see where it goes. But yeah, it's a bit of a concerning direction at the moment. And I mean, the the guy who is leading this this panel, Angus McBeath, he is a former superintendent of Edmonton Public Schools. That is worth uh, worth something because he clearly has experience in, in education. However, uh, he, he's an older gentleman. He has it doesn't necessarily mean that he's uh, unqualified, but uh, his teaching experience c- does come from quite some time ago. He ended. He, he stopped being a teacher in 1986. 1986, right? like, well before the one. internet. Yeah, Clancy, were you even born? Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> born then. <laughs> <laughs> I was Thank born you. three that, years later. Oh, brother. <laughs> wow. How, how you feeling, Keith? Yeah, I think I was in grade four or five. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Um, anyway, that, uh, yes. We're such spring chickens. Uh, such spring chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The other thing to note about Angus McBeath, surprise, surprise, he is a donor to the UCP. So Shocking. It's shocking. Um, so, again, we I think we have to wait and see what they actually do. Uh before we judge them here. But again, there does seem to be a bit of a bias and a bit of a hole on this on this particular panel. And on that ATA agreement, I think it's worth saying that um, that really the decision for the government to rip up that agreement, it sounded like to me when I spoke to the ATA extremely briefly on Friday, that they came out of left field and they weren't prepared mm-hmm. for that. Um, they issued a statement on Saturday um, about kind of their stance on it. And, uh, and I think it um, maybe speaks to a tense relationship forming between this group and the government. Remember the background of this too, right? The UCP at one time has been pretty aggressive about this whole curriculum rewrite. And at, at one point, Jason Kenney had, well, several points, he said that this was an ideological rewrite, that the NDP was inserting their own ideology into this curriculum, even though 
the vast majority of it's being put together by teachers. Uh, and he at one point also said that uh, we have to put it through the shredder, basically. Yeah, he said d- that multiple d- times. Multiple times, and then right. He, and then he dialed it back during the election campaign and went, well, maybe we'll keep some of it. Keep some of it, right. And so they have backed off on on some of that rhetoric recently, which has been good to see. But there, there does seem to be a worry among the government that – uh, there's something in this curriculum that is not favorable to them and that the NDP has messed with it in some way that is favorable to them. And so I think that does form kind of an undercurrent in what's going on here. And it is a lot of money as well. The government is spending millions of dollars on this curriculum rewrite. And so the question is, if you go back to the drawing board, what's the cost to taxpayers for that as well, especially under a UCP government that has promised fiscal restraint? The other thing I'll note here, right, We've seen a lot of panels, right? You mentioned a lot of panels. We had the Blue Ribbon panel on Alberta's finances, right? We have the minimum wage panel. We had a panel announced this week on safe consumption sites, uh, and now this one on the curriculum as well. So that's four right there, and I may be missing some. And the complaint with a lot of these is that they have been stacked in a way that, um, similar to the boards, agencies, and commissions, that there is a lot of Tory voices, uh, a lot of one perspective and one perspective only on some of these panels. The minimum wage one in particular stood out to me as having been very stacked in a certain direction. And this is a trick that a lot of governments use, but the Kenny government seems to be perfecting it in a way. They are trying to make some changes, but they know that some of these changes are a little unpopular or a little controversial. And so you hire an expert panel Probably with a predetermined outcome. And when it comes time to make your change, if you get pushback from the opposition or the media or or lobbyist groups, you can just say, well, hey, the experts told us. Yeah, the independent panel uh, told told us. us, Hey, that this is the way to go. And who are you to argue with experts? So this is about political cover. Absolutely. Where exactly uh, this uh, the cover is going to be needed, what exactly the policies are going to look like, we still don't know. But uh, it's not unreasonable for Albertans to be suspicious that the fix is in with a lot of these panels. Such a cynic. <laughs> well, and in particular this week, you know, my this is getting a little off topic, but for me, the one on safe consumption sites, uh, it's being headed by former Edmonton Police Chief Rod Connect, who I think is a uh, a thoughtful fellow. But his commentary that he he's expressed previously to the Edmonton Journal on safe consumption sites is very very similar to the UCP. He's expressing a lot of caution about community impacts. And the whole premise of this panel is to say, we need to study these community impacts because no one's looked at it before. Uh, And as we found out this week, that is just simply not true. A report, in fact, came out yesterday uh, studying, uh, going through great detail with many statistics and numbers of the community impacts, crime, social disorder, needles, uh, around these safe consumption sites. So I'm awaiting uh, the uh, Associate Minister Jason Luan's response to this, that there has been no engagement, that there has been no study of community impacts, because at this point, that premise seems uh, completely false. Well, and also, look at BC. Look at Vancouver. I mean, it's, it's not as though we're the only jurisdictions no, to have studies. It's not exactly. like we're, we're Alberta just, you know, forged the way when it came to safe consumption sites. The downtown east side has had one forever. It has been completely and utterly studied. Oh, God, I don't even know how many times. Right. So to, to argue that these things are never looked at properly and the full, you know, community and social and health and economic and business impacts have never been looked at, that's simply not true at all. That's right. 
Um, it's probably worth pointing out too um, when you're talking about stacking the the panels. We've got Rob Connect, who obviously is not a huge fan of safe consumption size from everything he seems to have said. Janice McKinnon, who's heading the Blue Ribbon panel, has already recommended that a whole bunch of things that the NDP government should have done to rein in spending. I talked to former Saskatchewan Premier Roy Romano and he and I said to him, you know, you, you're talking about this independent panel and how important it was. Like, why why do the independent? Was it political cover? He's like, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, he just straight up says yes. And now Janice McKinnon, who was obviously finance minister then, is heading up a panel. So swings and roundabouts, everybody. All right, let's move over to our last topic, cannabis. And we haven't talked about cannabis in a while, so we it's a fun update. We haven't talked about cannabis update. in ages. Yeah, there's a lot going on this week, but uh, I just thought this was interesting because it is something we haven't heard of before, and it was actually a topic I was completely unaware of until the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. I was having coffee with someone from there, and he mentioned that this was a thing. And the thing he mentioned, settle back, everybody, Get yourself a cup of tea. Let me tell you a story about cannabis property taxes. <laughs> so basically, um, in Alberta, if you are a cannabis producer, you're a licensed cannabis producer, the portion of your business that grows the crop is not at the same level of property tax as the rest of your business or, in fact, any other business. So if you're growing, um, if you're growing a, a cannabis crop, if you're in a rural municipality or a county – the part that is dedicated to growing the crop is taxed at zero. So you don't pay any property tax on that part of your operations. If you're in an urban municipality, you pay 20% of the going rate, which next year will drop down to 10%, which the year after will drop down to zero. So municipalities are worried that they're losing out on a whole bunch of money here. Now, it's really hard to actually quantify how much that is because you've got there are 20 licensed producers in Alberta it depends on the cost of the operation, its footprint, the individual municipalities, like uh, mill rate, um, and also the property valuations. Now, I called more than half of Alberta's cannabis producers and only two were willing to have a chat with me about this. So getting the actual numbers of how much municipalities are missing out on is really tough. But we're talking hundreds of thousands for if not tens of thousands, depending again on the intricacies of the tax setup in their region. So municipalities want the government to change this so that cannabis producers pay um, light industrial on their entire operation, not just on the production slash office facility part of it. Now, um, I spoke with Aurora Cannabis, which is, of course, if not the largest and one of the largest producers in Canada, certainly the biggest in Alberta. It has giant setups down in Medicine Hat and uh, down near the Edmonton Airport as well. Like huge, massive, hangar-sized operations there. And he made a really interesting point, which was that was Cam Batley with, with the organisation said, how can you argue that cannabis isn't a crop? Because that's what it comes down to, is that the producers are not being taxed because cannabis is a crop. That's a good point. Cannabis is a crop. I mean, sure, it's not wheat, it's not soy, it's not, I don't know, other stuff that people grow. It's not canola. <laughs> Corn. <laughs> Corn. Yeah, yeah. But, that, but that is interesting because it is a crop, but it's also a drug. It is, yeah. And I asked AUMA and also the R Rural Municipalities Association, um, well, Rural Municipalities of Alberta. Sorry, guys. RMA. Anyway, I asked them as well and said, well, yeah, but it's a crop. And they're like, yeah, but it's a recreational crop. So now you kind of have this really interesting, 
I don't know. It's it's kind of an interesting conundrum because at what point does government should government wade in and tax crops according to what they are? Are they going to turn around to greenhouses and say, "I'm sorry, you only grow pretty flowers, so you're going to get taxed more now"? Yeah. Or what if they also grow like herbs to sell in the summer? Then is that what if they're edible flowers, right? Because nasturtiums, for example, put them on a salad. Bam, there you go. Edible, also decorative. How are they going to tax that? Well, and does the profitability <laughs> of an industry impact how much it should be taxed yeah. by by municipalities? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other question because the cannabis industry also has had a bit of a bumpy ride in the last you know couple of years since it started to be set up, and um, we just saw the supply shortage. And and uh, for distributors. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. So right now, what would it do to those producers to tax them? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that business model would look like. It's it's an interesting debate because it, it, I feel like both sides of this are right in, yeah. their, in their own way. Uh, and yet there's still a conflict because... <laughs> you yeah, can really see both sides You really do, right. Clearly, so yeah, yeah cannabis, it, it is a crop. You grow it. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are fields of it, uh, usually protected by heavy security, which is a little, <laughs> little, little different than uh, your average cornfield. But... Uh, uh, in that case, it is a crop that causes extra costs to municipalities, right? Because the industry is growing so fast and because it is so big, uh, because cannabis is distributed very widely, um, there are costs on roads, on uh, municipal licensing, on uh, anything else having Waste to do- Wastewater, water, infrastructure uh, exa- of all kinds, all, more policing maybe? More policing, exactly, right. So there's extra security concerns around that. So there are costs to municipalities. And so there, I think there is a legitimate argument to say- well, if this is the industry that is causing these costs, maybe they need to pay a little bit more towards facilitating those costs or servicing those costs. So I, in this case, would probably not rush to make a change. I think we need to get a better handle on where the industry is growing, where its ceiling is. Uh, growing. Growing. Hey. Yeah, there you go. Um, but I think this is something that the government should be looking at. It sounds like they probably are. Yeah. But I think we do need to kind of get a handle on... Uh, where the industry is, how much impact it really does have before they actually set a new tax rate for it. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out here, which I probably should have done at the start, is that when I contacted the government about this, uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Casey Madu, he said in a statement to me over email, well, that doesn't seem fair, so I'm going to look at this and he's going to take the issue to a cabinet committee and he's probably going to recommend changes in September. So that's kind of less than a year of cannabis even being uh, like legalized, right? Which is in, it's it's very quick. Yeah. Well, we'll see what he does, but. And it's worth pointing out too that, um, you know, municipalities like Edmonton and Calgary for a long time have been pushing the provincial government to, um, to guarantee funding to offset some of the costs yeah. that they're expecting to see from, um, from the industry. And so, you know, because it's the province's responsibility to distribute that money that they earn through cannabis. It's yeah. not up to the federal government to make those agreements. Yeah, the excise tax that provinces got like 75% or something like that, right. right? So then the other argument is, should they just not distribute more of that to municipalities exactly. to deal with these, particularly when they had to deal with, you know, building the infrastructure and setting up the wastewater and if they have producers in their area, I mean, that might be a really good solve here, but I mean, who knows? I also spoke with one of the smallest producers in Alberta, Viridus, who's just up here in like inside the boundary of Edmonton. He has like six employees and an 8,000 square foot facility. It's really not very big. And he made the really good point too that 
he called it a gold rush mentality. And I think he's bang on with that, that everybody wants to get their piece of the marijuana pie, as it were. Edibles are not legal yet. Everyone wants to get more money out of them. And he's like, we cannot absorb that. If they were to raise our property taxes, we just wouldn't be able to absorb it. Whereas someone like Aurora, you know, it's a billion dollar company, they probably have a better chance of being able to absorb that extra cost just because of the fact that they are so freaking huge. When I talked to distributors um, a few weeks ago about the supply issue, um, it was really interesting because they said that exactly what you're talking about is making it a concern for cannabis producers that mid to small sized companies are going to be pushed out of the market. Mm -hmm. And is that what we want? Is that the type of industry we want where there's not going to be that variety? There's not going to be smaller enterprises who are able to to produce. Um, and yeah. And especially because the UCP makes a point of supporting businesses. So if you're to raise their property taxes and specifically target an industry that in Aurora's case has invested a billion bucks in the province already, is that a wise way to go about it? Like there's a lot of moving parts to this and I'm really interested to see how this file goes. Okay, let's move over to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things we've seen or read or listened to lately that we think you might also enjoy. Clancy, you want to kick us off, mate? I do, and I'm so excited for what I'm about to recommend because I listened to this podcast this morning and it is honestly one of the most fascinating podcasts I've ever heard. Clancy said, one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know that Clancy is something of a podcast queen. So that is a massive, massive call. Exactly. And so it's particularly interesting for journalists. So it's an episode of Radiolab and I'm just going to, it's called The Right to Be Forgotten. And I'm going to just read kind of a bit of the blurb. In an online world, that story about you lives forever. The tipsy photograph of you at the college football game, it's up there. That news article about the political rally you were marching at, it's up there. A DUI, that's there too. But what if it wasn't? In Cleveland, Ohio, a group of journalists are trying to trying out an experiment that has the potential to turn things upside down. They're unpublishing content they've already published. And it's so fascinating. It's about this group of journalists who are getting emails. Um, I think the website is called cleveland.com and it's um, one of the major news sites in the area. And what they've had is just all these emails over the years from people saying, you know, I made a mistake 10 or 15 years ago. It's really negatively impacted my life. Um, They go through some of these examples and, and decisions they made, but it's a group of journalists discussing, you know, does this person have the right to be forgotten? Uh, because because when articles used to be published by newspapers, and I mean, it's one of the um, it's one of the duties of journalism is that we're a public record, we're the first public record. Um, but you know, you know, a hundred years ago, when people would publish an article, it would be in print, and then in order to see it again, you'd have to go to microfiche and look through it. I don't even know if you that was around a hundred years ago. You would have to know it existed. Exactly. Yeah. You'd have to have remembered and know it existed in the first place. And so it's just this really interesting ethical debate about do people have the right to be forgotten and what that means for journalism and whether, you know, that's a responsibility of journalism now to look at. Interesting. Especially in politics, that's a huge thing, right? Because during the election, all we saw was thing after thing after thing of, of issues coming out that people said in right, the past or right. whatever. Oh, That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to recommend a piece um, from CBC News in Calgary from Drew Anderson, who seems to only be on the UCP leadership file. Drew did an excellent job. Uh, Story came out yesterday. Kamikaze UCP candidate went from nearly broke to flush after getting envelopes with $60,000 documents allege. 
has this very evocative image of um, Jeff Calloway, who you might remember from previous adventures like running a kamikaze campaign to help Jason Kenney and destroy Brian Jean in the UCP leadership race. So it's done through a whole bunch of court documents out of Calgary um, that the elections commissioner has filed because Jeff Calloway has been hit with a whole bunch of elections offences and is appealing them as well. So it really details exactly what is alleged to have happened to this point. And Drew just did a really good job of kind of wrapping it all up in one little easy to understand bundle because that's the thing with this story is it's been dribs and drabs of bits and pieces and there's lots of weird little spider webby details and he did a really good job using those court documents to kind of tie it all together so highly recommend that you go and read that piece yeah that that is a re- that is a really fascinating piece and uh you know the the way he describes a scene in the bank oh, that, yeah. that allegedly occurred uh involving envelopes of cash and not believing no no nothing good comes from a political story involving envelopes <laughs> <Yeah>. of cash <laughs> so, rule 101 yeah <laughs> don't no. use envelopes of cash <laughs> yes but for the first time i think we get a really clear picture of how uh this uh, kamikaze campaign was funded to a degree uh, allegedly right these are these are cork documents not proven yet but th- that is fascinating i'm going to recommend a piece in esquire called inside the twisted worldwide hunt for a 7 million dollar stolen car and so this is a detective story it focuses on a private detective who takes only one kind of case and that is to find really, really expensive cars uh, that are almost never driven, that ha- were sitting in some some billionaire's home or, or showroom somewhere, uh, really, really expensive cars. That's all he does is search for these cars after they go missing. And in this particular one, he's looking for a 1938 teardrop Talbot Lago uh, what? coupe. Wow. Yeah, valued uh, currently at $7.6 million. That's been missing what for... What the heck? $7.6 million bucks for a freaking car? Uh, exactly, right. 1938. I think only a handful were ever made, uh, and I'm not sure how many still exist. Damn. Yeah, so really, really expensive car. It's been missing for about six years, and it kind of goes... Goes through wow. this detective story, uh, this drama to find this car, and this guy who is just a character in his own right. You know, imagine having this job where you, the only case you ever take is, "Hey, I've lost my million dollar car. Can you help me find it somewhere on the planet?" And so, anyway, quite quite an interesting read. Amazing. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Claire Clancy, Keith Durine. I'm your host, Emma Graney. We'll be back again this time next week with more Press Gallery to talk all about Alberta politics. And as always, any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach out to me. egraney at postmedia.com is my email or you can find me hanging out on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Thanks for listening. 